This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed, and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Shots? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. 
We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country's ever seen. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you. This time of dog owners treating their now famous dog Mishka with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test, and it didn't go and it didn't go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we we have this idea for um, an at-home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So, um, I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps. You can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're yeah. uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your, your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence, um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian shepherd owners always kind of... Uh, Maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but, yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a, sign, you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your... You said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually... Um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when we got her when she was 10 weeks old. So we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So 
we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly. <laughs> they, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test <laughs> you did with, well, a, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on, on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know there is zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she's actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank. You know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank, far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with. Her, her muzzle alone, she has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie, again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this time. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. Right. And I will say, I think, 
you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog sir anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home where, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... Isn't that- I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey jo Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials. And playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. And you call me out. I can't hide anymore. I have no You can't see through. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure, searching for a water route to the Pacific Ocean, laying claim to an American West that they just secured in the Louisiana Purchase, and making peace with the Indian tribes who are now technically in their land. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 24th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The only other thing that's of great importance before the river breaks up and they proceed on into terra incognita. Unknown land. Our resident Lewis and Clark expert Clay Jenkinson continues. Laborn, the principal leader of the Hidatsa, finally does come down to have an encounter with the captain. 
Many of the Hidatsa, the neighboring Indian tribe of their Mandan hosts, had visited them during their winter there, but their chief had not, even though the Corps of Discovery had been there for over four months. The fact that LeBourne kept himself away all this time. LeBourne has been no farther than 15 miles away, and it took until the Ides of March for LeBourne finally to decide to make the journey down to Fort Mandan and see what these captains were all about. LeBourne was close to another set of captains, the British-Canadian traders, and likely saw no reason to upset that economically advantageous relationship to meet some folks who like to call themselves the Americans. Plus, as historian Gary Moulton notes, traders and travelers' accounts agree on describing him as ugly, brutal, lecherous, bad-tempered, and homicidal. So, he might just not have been a guy who liked to smoke the pipe of peace with some randoms. Clark's going up to the canoe camp just as LeBourne is heading towards Fort Mandan. They pass. There's some sort of brief encounter, and Clark sends him on to talk with Captain Lewis. Unfortunately, Meriwether Lewis is not writing in his journal at this point. Violating his mentor Thomas Jefferson's order to document everything. And so we don't know really what transpired and what was really one of the critical diplomatic encounters of the entire expedition. We know from other sources, from the Canadian traders and trappers who were there, that LeBourne was very skeptical of the Americans. In fact, he said very derisively that the only two men who had any talent were the gunsmith and the blacksmith, and the rest of them uh, said we could kill them like, like wolves out on the prairie. We, miss, we would just pick them off if we caught them out there. And notice that he has no particular praise for either William Clark or Meriwether Lewis. It's pragmatic skills, metallurgical skills, skills with guns and iron that impressed LeBourne. And so he was the skeptic. The Mandan were on the whole very friendly and generous and sympathetic and helpful. LeBourne was standoffish and derisive and at times contemptuous of Lewis and Clark. In fact, the, the Canadian accounts of LeBourne's attitude towards the Americans are fascinating. They give us a kind of a, a different perspective, a different lens on things that we wouldn't get a chance to see just looking at it from the journals of Lewis and Clark. And so he goes down and meets with Lewis, and Lewis gives him a whole range of gifts. Gorget, which is a kind of ceremonial metal throat piece and a peace medal and a coat. For which he was much pleased. Clark reports because bad boy Lewis ain't writing. They had actually sent gifts for LeBourne way back in late October, and LeBourne, when he comes to Fort Mandan, tells Lewis that he never got those gifts. Uh, they must have miscarried. Uh, they never reached him. So he, he now wants another set of gifts because whatever Lewis says he sent uh, never arrived in the hands of LeBourne. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But I've always assumed that LeBourne did get the gifts. He was one of the most powerful men in the Hidatsa world. I doubt that anyone would dare not pass on those gifts to him if they understood that that was the intention of the captains. 
But it's easy enough for LeBourne to say to Lewis, never got it, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Somebody must have run off with them. And so then Lewis has to go to their dwindling supply of trade gifts and produce another set for this great pompous chief of the Hidatsa world. I find that story very, very amusing. At one point, LeBourne says to the Canadians, what is it with you white people? that you leave your families sometimes thousands of miles away. You come out here alone into the middle of the middle of nowhere. It's dangerous, it's lonely, it's, uh, you're exposed to a range of climatic conditions that are extraordinarily harsh. Um, you're surrounded by potential enemies. You don't speak our language. And then when you get here, what is it that you want for all of that epic journey? You want beaver skins, but a, a beaver skin is three feet by two feet, or maybe even smaller. What, what's the point of that? If you want skins, we have buffalo, we have elk, we have mule deer, we have antelope. What's the point of this relatively insignificantly sized skin that everyone is so obsessed about? It doesn't keep you warm, it doesn't feed you. And so this is a kind of a, a deconstruction of the whole point of the, of the fur trade. You know, the, the international fur trade was one of the first great global businesses. And LeBourne is absolutely right that traders from Scotland and Ireland and England and France and Spain and Russia and the United States are fanning out across the, the wilderness of the world to collect beaver skins. And those beaver skins don't provide any warmth for humans, but they go off in these packs. And they, once they get to St. Louis and New Orleans or to Montreal, they go over to England or to the continent and they're, they're processed for the felt of beaver hats, men's fashion. And those beaver hats don't keep people warm. They do shed water pretty well. But the whole beaver felt industry d depends upon literally thousands, even tens of thousands of entrepreneurial individuals to go out into the middle of the middle of the middle of nowhere and to set traps for beaver. And LeBourne looks on this and says, you know, you white people are really funny. If you're gonna come out all this way, come for something worth having, a buffalo robe. I just find that just extremely interesting. And th those Canadian documents are of incalculable value to us as another lens on on this extraordinary story. A lens into the thinking of an Indian chief who wasn't impressed by Lewis and Clark and wouldn't promise for the Hidatsa to make peace with their neighbors or to be loyal to the United States. But that didn't stop Lewis and Clark from trying to impress him. Two guns were fired for this great man. Will LeBourne change his attitude about these Americans? You'll have to stick with us on this, the most epic road trip ever, to find out. And thanks as always to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. He puts us there, and from every point of view possible. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at claydjenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour. 
And thanks as always to Alex Cortez, who does such a great job on this series. And if you ever want to read the definitive book, Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose, he's long past, but the book is resonant today as it's ever been. The Lewis and Clark story, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Loretta Lynn, Van Leer Rose's The Record 2004, her comeback record, won a couple of Grammys. We love telling stories about music and musicians, and today Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, tells us the story of the man behind this record, one of the great musicians and producers in this country. Take it away. You're listening to Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. Sports arenas all around the world play this song to get the audience pumped up and ready for a show. And the man behind Seven Nation Army brings the same level of intensity to his daily life. Jack White is a Grammy Award-winning musician and record producer. He's credited with starting the 2000s Garage Rock Revival with his band The White Stripes. Led several other successful bands like The Rockin' Tours, who you may know from their hit song Steady As She Goes and has since had a successful solo career. He's produced albums with Loretta Lynn, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Conan O'Brien. Yes, that Conan O'Brien, the famous late-night host. He's actually a pretty good rockabilly musician. White is famously eccentric, holding a special place in his heart for the old way of doing things. He almost always wears a suit, records his music on tape, and his most recent album, Lazaretto, was the top-selling vinyl record since 1994. It may not seem like there's much competition in this category, but as the vinyl revival continues to build steam, White has shown himself ahead of the pack. Whether you know Jack White or not, you've heard his work, and whether you like him or not, there's something about his dedication to simplicity that's incredibly powerful. White grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a giant Catholic family, the youngest of 10 children, and as good Catholics do, he worked as an altar boy and was accepted at a high school seminary. Not exactly the standard rock star story. Just Google a picture of White and try to imagine a priest. He looks more like a bad Johnny Depp impersonator. He ultimately decided against the priesthood, instead opting to attend Cass Technical High School. Why, you might ask? Well, it was because he bought a new amp and they wouldn't let him take it to seminary. During school, he began working as an apprentice of Polster and formed a short-lived band with his upholstery instructor. They called themselves The Upholsters. Original, I know. Pain in the sympathy. Pain they did one thing that you might call original, hiding 200 records in couches and chairs that they sold to the Detroit population. 
Only two have ever been found, and that's a lot of Detroit grandmas sitting on music history. Jack's time as an upholster did more than just teach him how to make furniture and rip punk riffs. It was a moment when I was a, a, an apprentice upholsterer. I was about 15, I think, 15 or 16, and there was a, it was a mid-century modern couch, sort of like a Vladimir Kagan piece, I think. I know I had pink fabric with silver threads in it, and I, it was tempted in the back. It was three staples in the back, just to keep it in place while the upholsterer was working on the front of it. And I just kept staring at this over and over again. I was cleaning up and sweeping up, and then I went working on it, and I just kept staring at it. That's the minimum amount of staples to hold that piece of fabric down. That's, now we can call that upholstered. A table can only, it can have three legs and still stand, but two, it'll fall. So that sort of image has been burned into my brain. I think about that probably once a week, that image of that, those three staples, and it's affected everything. I, I, I forced myself to do anything that I create artistically and music-wise, whatever it is, I force it through the funnel of that idea. I looked at it as a way of limiting myself so that I could create more things, create more songs, because I'm so boxed in, my brain is forced to work with the tools that are at hand. From that moment on, White's artistic life followed two principles. Number one. The number three. He calls himself Jack White III, owns Third Man Records, and toured under the name Three Quid in the UK. And of course, number two. A dedication to simplicity. Dan Rather of Access TV interviewed the famously private Jack White on this topic and so much more, delving deeper into White's insistence on simplicity and the older things. White's transition to the music business with the White Stripes relied heavily on this dedication to simplicity. For the longest time, I was determined to only use cheap and broken pawn shop type guitars, guitars made of plastic and cheap wood that were out of tune to make it the job harder on myself on stage instead of easier so that I'd have this wall to break through to get, some, to get somewhere better. You know? And if I could accomplish that on stage, if I could pull off a song with an auto-tune guitar, that's, then I know I was getting somewhere. You know? But br- a brand new amp, it always works every time. A brand new guitar, it always stays in tune. I mean, it's kind of, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, you know? I mean, I'm all about putting my own obstacles in front of myself. There were only two musicians in the White Stripes. His composition focused on driving and memorable riffs. His singing was less about performance and more about raw motion. Part of this focus on simplicity stems from his humble beginnings. I hate to label the generation now entitled, but it feels the sense of entitlement that's around nowadays seems to be something that kind of bugs me enough to want to try to overcome it. I don't see beauty in teenagers all sitting next to each other texting and not talking face to face, you know. I don't see, you know, that beauty in, in the way that pop music is all recorded on computer and auto-tuned and, and presented in that, in that really plastic way. I guess I just do my best to whatever I do to, to, try, to, to try to defeat those ideas and, and present it in, in, into something I think is at least an attempt at getting at truth and getting at beauty. White's most recent album even includes a song titled Entitlement, which focuses on the importance of self-determination and hard work. And that's a lot coming from somebody who spent a long time working as an upholster. In a time when everybody feels entitled Why can't I feel entitled to Somebody took away my God-given right I guess God must have gave it to you Even with these self-imposed restrictions, the White Stripes became a massive success, catapulting White from a Detroit technical student to a household name. All this time, White continued to rely on the simplicity of his work and lifestyle. 
However, White's greatest source of simplicity was not himself. He relied heavily on someone else. Who knows where songs come from? You just have to sit there and always feel like, you know, Michael Jackson said one time, you have to let God in the room. I think that's exactly true. You have to sit there and relinquish all control. I think people think when you write and you create, you're the person in control and you're making all this happen as if you're, you know, some kind of magician or something. But it's not really that. You sit there and you become an antenna and you just let things happen through you. And the more you let it happen, the more you relinquish control, the, I think the more beautiful it is. It becomes something that has almost nothing to do with you. And the songs, if people like the songs and they get played on the radio or sold at stores, it's almost like I, I, I had nothing to do with it. And I love that feeling. White's Catholic upbringing never quite left him. And even though he stopped attending Mass, his music continued to rely on his relationship with God. White believes that the spiritual nature of music involves getting closer and closer to God's creation. In your best moments creating music and being involved as that antenna to create music, your best moments you're imitating creation from nothingness, which is only God can do. Only God can create the universe from nothing. And we're just creating from pre-existing materials. So if you build a house or you're an architect or designer, you're building with wood and steel and plastic and all that, you're using pre-existing materials that were already here. Look what I did. I made this pyramid or I made the Empire State Building. Compared to God, it's like big deal. So what, you know? But in music, you're creating from nothingness, but you're not really using any materials. You're just, you're making something exist that didn't exist before. And that's probably as close to God as you can get, I think. Even though White never attended seminary, he believes that he can have a similar impact with his music. Any calling in my head to, to preach on a pulpit or something like that comes out through what I can do on stage and present, present in that way. Because I don't, I'm not like an actor who joins a Broadway play and I follow a script and uh, there's a director there telling me how to do it and what we're all trying to accomplish, playing a part. I'm making it all up on my own, on stage, on the spot. I don't have a set list and I just, I do whatever comes naturally to me. So that's very much like a preacher who preaches from the hip at a Baptist church. It's, it's the power of the Holy Ghost that's involved in them, helping them connect with other people. And I think that's what I'm trying to aim for on stage is to try to get someplace so far away from me and, and connect with them in some way that makes sense. With his unique combination of intensity, simplicity, and a reliance on God for inspiration, White's career has been nothing but successful. And at the core of his work, he hopes to accomplish something incredibly important. What I'm aiming for is the truth, you know, because the blues is the truth to me. And the truth doesn't mean, you know, that that story happened to me and I'm telling you about it. You know, basically, you know, when they say in the, in the, the founding fathers said the pursuit of happiness, you know, they didn't say, you know, life, liberty and happiness. They said life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's the same thing how I'm thinking about truth in music. It's the pursuit of the truth. I'm at least trying to get there. And maybe you might get something out of it, too, if you're listening to it and you can relate to it in your own way. But I'm not telling you anything about myself and saying, you know, don't make the mistake I made or do what I'm doing or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a story and this is a character and he's doing something or she's doing something. And we're trying to get to something truthful that makes sense. At the end of the day, like all good musicians, Jack White is a storyteller. In fact, one of his band's names is the Rockin' Tours, literally meaning the storytellers. And as his career continues to span different genres and icons of the industry, he's always told stories. White plans to continue his search for truth on and off the stage. 
always with his signature old world flair and driving guitar riffs. For Our American Stories, I'm Shadrach Straley. Great job as always, Shadrach, a Hillsdale intern doing professional work. Jack White's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're about to hear one of the most remarkable stories about one of the most remarkable women, and how she triumphantly shined one of the clearest lights on one of the darkest moments in history. And on this day in history, Corrie Ten Boom was born, and she also died. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful and important in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now let's take a look and listen to The Life of Corey Ten Boom. On May 10th, 1940, Adolf Hitler's Germany invaded the Netherlands, overtaking the country in five days. On bombing raids, the German Luftwaffe dropped over 97 tons of explosives on the city of Rotterdam, forcing the Dutch to surrender. During the subsequent Nazi occupation, over 100,000 Dutch Jews were rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Few would survive. In the face of these horrors and at the threat of losing their own liberty, An elderly father and his two daughters risked everything to save the lives of these persecuted people. This is their true story, based on the testimony of the trio's only survivor. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. The youngest of four children, Corey was born in Holland, Holland in 1892 to Casper and Cornelia Ten Boom. Casper Ten Boom, or Holland's grand old man as he was known, was a devoted father and husband and a man of high moral character, very much respected by the local community. The Ten Boom home was a typical Dutch house. It was tall and narrow. The bottom floor served as the store for their family-run watch and clock shop. The floors above were their living quarters. The house, or baye as they called it, served them well when it was just two parents and four children. But when their elderly aunts moved in with them, they needed more space. So Father Ten Boom bought the house next door in order to bridge the houses together. But the problem was the floor levels didn't line up, and the addition had two floors while the Baye had three. Here's Pamela Rosewell Moore, Corey Ten Boom's close friend and companion. So you, it, it fools me to this day, because you never quite know which landing you're on or which house you're in. The different levels made for a very odd house but it was a peculiarity that would play an important role in their clandestine work during World War II. 
Hori's life was a happy one. She learned many valuable and important lessons from her father. And when Cory finally fell in love, she fantasized deeply about a marvelous marriage, as many young women do. However, her heart was broken and her dreams were shattered when the young man showed up at her house for a visit with his fiance. Somehow, Cory's social standing did not meet with his mother's expectations. Here's Cory on that heartbreaking period. It was as if my heart was broken that moment. And after they had gone, I went straight to my uh, bedroom. And I said, Lord Jesus, I belong to you, lock, stock, and barrel. I surrender this part of my being that is wounded. Corey dedicated herself to the care of her aged live-in aunts. And with her sister Betsy, they nursed them until the time of their passing. The two sisters also worked with the youth in their city, hosting Bible studies. And Corey initiated a club for the mentally handicapped. She loved them dearly. Children! Children! Come! Come! Have some cookies. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> She wrote a book called Common Sense Not Needed, just a little pamphlet book about her work among those who weren't intellectually as able as others. They can do anything. And she taught them from the Bible. They can do anything. Tragedy struck in 1918 when their mother suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. While she remained bedridden, Betsy took on the housework and Corey began helping in the watch shop where the family began seeing Corey's keen business sense. Due to Corey's management skills, the family improved their financial situation. She became Holland's first licensed woman watchmaker. She went to Switzerland and did a, a course in watchmaking and watch repair under the Swiss, who were, of course, the leaders, and came back and uh, became the main helper to Father Timbal in his watch shop. Then, in 1921, Corey's mother passed away. Years went by, and though war was looming in Europe, it was but a shadow in the Netherlands. That is, until the unimaginable happened. Hitler's Germany invaded Holland on May 10, 1940. Within weeks, life changed drastically for everyone in Holland. I will never forget that through these streets, and I saw tanks, and it was a real performance, this big, huge army going through the streets to make impression on us. And I can still remember these boots marching over the streets. Dum, dum, dum. The beginning was not so terrible. We had only five days war, then we had to surrender, and it seemed that things were a little bit the same as before. The Nazis confiscated all radios in the Netherlands. They did not want anyone to have information about the war. Any other radios in the house? No, none. But the ten booms managed to keep one. They kept it hidden under one of the steps of stairs, and during the night, they would gather around their radio and listen to the news that came in from the BBC in London. They would also listen to the words of their queen, who at the beginning of the war sought refuge in London. By wireless from the BBC, Her Majesty the Queen of the Netherlands. Fellow Hollanders, 
The lights have gone out over free Holland, where only two weeks ago there was a free nation of men and women brought up in the cherished tradition of Christian civilization. There is now the stillness of death. But they also listened to the speeches of Adolf Hitler. I heard her say a couple of times, it started out in a normal voice, and then the voice got more and more excited and higher and higher, and in the end it was the voice of a demon. And when we come back, more on the life of Corey Ten Boom, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. She was born and died on this day in history. This is Our American Stories. The life of Corey Ten Boom continues. The Nazis had confiscated all the radios in the Netherlands, as we learned in the last segment. But the Ten Booms kept one for themselves. Let's pick up the story from there. After the German invasion of the Netherlands, the Nazis took further steps to consolidate their power. It began slowly. Take your stop. But the Nazi propaganda machine spewed out its voice. Take your stop. The Jews were forced to line up in order to receive a patch to be worn on their clothing. Take your stop. It was the identifying yellow star of David. Take your stop. A fed up Father Tenboom waited in line to receive his star. Next. You shouldn't be here. Take your star. I've come for my star. They're for Jews. If we all had them, they wouldn't know the difference between a Gentile and a Jew. Go home. I will wear my star, and I won't take it off until God tells me to take it off. The God of Abraham and Isaac, and my God too. But quickly, Jewish stores were attacked, their houses raided, and eventually the Jews themselves were rounded up. An underground resistance to hide and protect Jews was quickly established. Dr. Heemstra. And the cause literally showed up on the Ten Boom's doorstep when a doctor arrived hiding a Jewish orphan baby under his coat. A local pastor who was visiting the Bay that day was unwilling to take any personal risk and refused to take care of the Jewish child. It is the law, and Christians must obey the law. Think what you are risking. For the sake of one Jewish baby. Good day, Temple. How can that man call himself a Christian? If a mouse lives in the cookie jar, that doesn't necessarily make him a cookie. <laughs> Father Ten Boom stepped up. What will we do? Corey, we are meant to obey the law of the state if it does not go against a higher law of God. We will keep the child. Betsy and Corey rallied around their father's decision. He's beautiful. Corey's experience organizing youth groups would now earn a huge payout. Here's Corey. And once we heard that in a Jewish orphanage in Amsterdam, all the babies had to be killed because they were Jewish babies. When we heard that, our boy said, we will save them. And we will steal them. 
and they went to that orphanage and they stole all the hundred babies. Uh, you will say, how is it possible? I will tell you a secret. You know, sometimes there came to us good Germans who were soldiers were in the army and they said we don't like to work any longer for Adolf Hitler we will not kill the Jewish people can you help us and I always said sure I will help you just come in it didn't take long for Jews to show up at the Bayet desperately looking for refuge mothers with children young people business owners professors the elderly all facing the threat of incarceration because they were Jews. No one was turned away. They had to have extra ration cards, and the the ration cards weren't easy to come by. The government was supplying them with food for three people, and of course there are a lot more people in the house than that. Soon the Bayet was filled with Jews, and due to food shortages and the lack of ration cards, which couldn't be counterfeited, Corey took a huge risk. All Jews, Mr. Konstra. She approached Fred Konstra and his wife. All ration cards are checked. Corey had taught Konstra's mentally handicapped daughter in her church group. I should not have asked you. Since Nazi occupation, Konstra had been working as a ration card distributor in the food office. How many cards do you need? Corey boldly asked for 100 ration cards. 100? And Konstra courageously agreed to supply them to Corey. I know someone who might do it. His desperate wife stormed out knowing that he had to account for each card to his Nazi supervisor. So, he faked a robbery. I'd have to be tied and gagged. Asking a close friend to beat him up to make his alibi seem more convincing. It worked. We have a secret code. Fearing their telephone was tapped, the Ten Booms devised a secret code in order to identify whether the Jew was a male Hello? or female. I have a woman's watch that needs repair. That meant that a Jew seeking a hiding place would be arriving. They also used a red triangular-shaped sign in their front window to let the new arrivals know whether it was safe to come inside. When the plain backside of the sign was displayed, Professor, they knew to stay away. Will you do us the honor of asking the blessing? In order to keep the housebound guests occupied, the Ten Booms created work schedules and activities. They also held nightly Bible studies. So often it was just like one big family together, you know, not thinking of being, must have been living sort of in the balance of the real life they were actually living, where they had enough to eat and were looking after each other and loved each other and the knowledge that uh, one day the Nazis might come. But things continued to get more difficult. Corey's nephews and even her sister Nolly were arrested and imprisoned. But fortunately, they were released. What do you do if the Gestapo comes? The possibility of a raid on the Bayet was very real. If one did occur, there was no place for the Jews to hide. You will have a visitor. Something had to be done. There was a famous architect who made these hiding places. And that was his part in underground work. Very important. I will never forget that he came upstairs and through the whole house to see where it was possible. And because this room was the highest of the house, he chose this, my tiny bedroom. I do. 
Perfect. The wall will go here. The wall was made of brick, and that was the secret of the hiding place. When they started to knock at it, it was a solid, so they didn't find it. They had to creep into this open of the hiding place. And then when they were in it, they could close the backside of the closet so that you couldn't see there was an opening. A non-privileged Jew will be unable to show his face in the Netherlands. For two eventful years, the Lord allowed us to help hundreds of people escape the Nazi death camps until February 28, 1944. Once there came a man to me and said, will you save my wife? It's my wife. She is arrested. She's been arrested. She has saved Jewish people. She's Jewish. And now she is in a police station. And there is one policeman who will run the risk to set her free if we pay him 600 guilders. But I have no money. Then she'll need a place to hide. That man was a betrayer. Around the side door. Come on. The sick Cory agreed to help the man and then retired to her room. At five o'clock, the doorbell sounded. Yes. I need the money. Now. Something didn't seem right to Betsy. He pushed the hidden buzzer to alert the house and began stalling. He finally opened the door only to be pushed back by the storming Nazi Gestapo. Cory was awakened when the Jews burst into her room and crawled into the hiding place. The unusual layout of the Beye slowed down the Nazis. By the time they got to her room, Cory was pretending to sleep. The Gestapo ripped her out of her bed. Where are the Jews? Lord Jesus, help me! Little did the Nazis know that the Jews were just feet away, listening to the horror of Cory being beaten as they sat protected in their hiding place. The Nazis began tearing the house apart, but had no success finding the Jews. As the ten booms were led to an awaiting truck, Corey was horrified to see Betsy and her nephew also bruised and bleeding. God is with us. As Father Ten Boom struggled to get into the truck, a Nazi officer softened for a moment. Boom. Give me your word, you will behave yourself, and you can die in your bed, old man, where you belong. If I stay behind, I will open my door to anyone who knocks for help. And when we come back, the story of Corey Ten Boom continues right after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Corey Ten Boom. She and her family being hauled off from their home by the Nazis. As the truck drove off, Close it up. Corey was shocked to see hundreds of people lined up along the sidewalk. See the house. Corey knew that they had come, regardless of the personal risk, to show their support for the Ten Booms, who did nothing more than offer kindness and protection to innocent human beings who were being hunted down like wild animals. They were taken from the police station to the prison in Scheveningen on the Dutch coast. And it was there that Father and Betsy and Corrie, at least Betsy and Corrie, saw their father for the last time. They were lined up with their noses to the wall, and Father Tenboom quoted Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And they didn't see him again. God be with you, Papa! Weeks later, on her 52nd birthday, Corey received a letter from her sister, Nolly, notifying her of their father's death. But for Corey, there was peace in this travesty. She recalled something that happened at the Baye a long time ago. In this house, in 1844, there happened something. A minister said to my grandfather, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is written in the Bible. My grandfather had never thought about it, but he saw that it was a commandment in the Bible, and he invited his friends, and they came in this house every week and had a prayer meeting for the Jews. I remember that when Father was warned by his friends, and they said, don't have always Jewish people in that house. It will end up in prison for you. And Father said, I'm too old for prison life. But when that will happen, it will be an honor to me to give my life for God's ancient people. And that's what really happened. While the letter bore difficult news, it also bore news of great hope. It's safe now. Corey noticed that the handwritten address on the envelope seemed to be sloping towards the stamp. Peeled it off and used the code word for the Jewish people, and it said in Dutch, Allah or Lord, you're saying failure. All the the watches are safe. While in prison, Corey was interrogated repeatedly by Nazi Lieutenant Roms. Would you mind telling me where you got these extra Russian cards? Then one day, he stopped asking specific questions about the underground, sat back, and looked Corey in the eyes. Will you tell me about your other activities? Corey eagerly sat up straight in the armchair. Now she had something to talk about. My sister and I held Bible classes until such meetings were forbidden. And we worked with retarded children. How? Excuse me? How would you work with them? We taught them about God. (coughs) What a waste. If you wanted converts, surely one normal person is worth all the half-wits in the world. Corey smiled. Here's what the subsequent exchange sounded like. I would like to tell you the truth, if I may, Lieutenant. Of course. Go right ahead. The officer leaned forward in his chair and picked up a pencil. Corey took a deep breath. You and I are human, and we look on the outside of a person. 
But God looks at a person's heart. He knows whether there is light or darkness inside the person. And that is what is important to him. Lieutenant Roms did not say anything, so Corey went on. Some people have great darkness in their hearts. Are you one of those people, Lieutenant? Today's session is over. To her surprise, the following morning, a guard brought her back to Lieutenant Roms. Here's Corey on what happened next. And so it happened that suddenly he showed me papers found in my house. And to my horror, I saw names, addresses, and particulars. That could mean not only my death sentence, but the death sentence of my family and friends who were in prison. The judge said, can you explain these papers? I said, no, I can't. And I felt terrible, terrible unhappy. But he knew better than I how dangerous the papers were. And he turned, he opened the door of the stove, and threw all the papers into the flames. My, how happy I was that moment. <laughs> if you had told me that I could be 100% happy when I was in a prison in the hands of an enemy, I should never have believed that. But when I saw these flames destroy these horrible papers, it was as if for the first time I understood Colossians 2.14 where it's written that Jesus has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, has taken them out of the way and nailed them at the cross. After spending nearly three months in solitary confinement, Corey, along with other prisoners, were taken to an awaiting train. And there, to her great delight and relief, she caught a glimpse of her sister Betsy, who was helping other prisoners board a train. Corey pushed her way through prisoners, calling out her sister's name. Finally, the two sisters were reunited. But as the doors of the train closed, they had no idea where they were going. Days later, the train finally came to a stop at a Nazi concentration camp in the Netherlands. But their stay was only temporary. And then came D-Day, the 6th of June, when the Germans apparently had received knowledge that there was going to be movement of troops and decided to empty their concentration camp in the Netherlands. And then they moved on to the real horror. Ravensbrück. Oh, my God. Ravensbrück. The most notorious extermination camp for women located in northern Germany. It was also a training center for female SS guards. The SS was Hitler's paramilitary organization. And these female guards were infamously inhumane and cruel. Upon arrival, Corey and Betsy were forced to strip naked for Nazi guard inspection. Up until this point, Corey had managed to hide her smuggled Bible from the Nazi soldiers. So while waiting in line, she began to pray. Now open up a way for us to get it through the gates of hell. But without clothes for cover, she was doomed. It's in God's hands now. When it was her turn to be searched, the guards got distracted by another prisoner. And Corey walked right through inspection. Please! Life. They were thrown into barracks 28. They discovered that it was known to have so many fleas that the guards just put the food down inside the door. 
and left them to it. When I was surrounded by people who had had a training in cruelties, and the Bible was forbidden, but we had every day twice a Bible message in that room where we were together in a concentration camp with 700 prisoners. And of course she learned that um, there was a crematorium. It was obvious, it was seen. And that she didn't know whether she'd be the next person to go into it. Women were taken away very often, being told they were going to have a shower, so they got all happy. Uh, but when they got there, water didn't come out of the shower, but gas. So that got around. So when the people came in to say, give out the names of the people, you're going to have a shower. They didn't know it might be a shower, but possibly it would end in the crematorium. Betsy's health was declining. And because she was not able to work as fast as the guards demanded, she was beaten savagely. Oh, Jesus. Show me how to live in this place. And when we come back, the final segment in this hour-long look at the life of Corey Ten Boom. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the final segment of the life, this extraordinary life, the life of Corey Ten Boom. At night, Betsy and Corey held Bible studies in their barracks. In all circumstances. On one such night, they were challenged by one of their fellow prisoners. And to the mindless, the word sounds so comforting. But you must believe you are God smells that stench from those chimneys and refuses to do anything. All I can say is that the same God you are accusing came and lived in the midst of our world. He was beaten and he was mocked and he died on a cross and he did it for love for us and why do you think your God of love sent you here? To obey him. If you know him, you don't have to know why. While Betsy's faith soared under all this hardship, Corey's was breaking. Do you think I haven't prayed? Come on! But I hate them. I hate every Nazi in this place. No hate, Corey. No hate. To Corey's consternation, Betsy pitied the Nazis. Even the traitor back home who reported the ten booms to the Nazi officials. Forgive them, for Jesus' sake. As their situation in the extermination camp got worse, Betsy began experiencing visions of a brighter future. 
Curtsy said, the Lord has told me that we are going to have a house in the Netherlands and it's beautiful, Corrie, I've seen it. The Lord showed it to me. It was a very big house for people who've suffered a lot psychologically in the war. We'll take them in, we'll look after them and we'll have a, we'll have a garden for them. They can plant flowers. It will be so good for them. You know, Corrie, Betsy also shared are, another assurance she received from God. We're going to be free. Corey clung to this promise with all her heart. You'll see. Until just a few days later, on December 16, 1944, Betsy died. I'm not going to die, Corey. Her body was placed in a rundown latrine. Betsy. Next to the others who had recently passed. Corey, you must look. Otherwise, you'll never know. It was in this place where Corey said her goodbyes. She's beautiful. Corey wondered whether Betsy's last words regarding their release was a result of delirium. Then, while standing for roll call one evening on December 28, 1944, Corey received this announcement. The following prisoners will come forward and stand by for selection and pickup. Seven, eight, nine, nine, two. Died last night. Six, six, seven, three, zero. Corey. Slowly, she stepped out from the ranks. Assuming she would never return, she handed her precious Bible to a prisoner and desperately declared, God is with you. Obediently, she followed the SS guard but not to the work fields or the trucks or the gas chamber. Corey was taken into an office. Sentence completed, 31st, 12.44. Without any explanation, Corey was given a pair of undersized shoes, an old dress, a hat, a coat, and her release papers. Soon, she was walking past the tower guards with their vicious attack dogs, past the electrified barbed wire fences, and stood at the extermination camp gates. As she passed the gates, Betsy's words came to her mind. You know, Corey, we're going to be free before the new year. We will. I know it. Years later, Corey would find out just how miraculous her release was. Years later, it was learned my release came through a clerical error, what some might call a mistake. Not long after I was set free, women my age were put to death. Corey wandered through the city for days. Eventually, she made her way back to Holland. Then, on May 1st, 1945, news quickly buzzed through Holland that Adolf Hitler committed suicide in a bunker in Berlin. Seven days later, the bells of St. Bavo Church rang out. The Nazis surrendered. Holland was free. Much of what Betsy told Corey had come to pass. There was more that Betsy had shared with her. They won't need concentration camps after the war, Corey. We won't need them at all, and we'll find one, and we'll clean it, and we'll paint it. On the outside, it'll be lovely 
green like flowers coming up in the spring and we'll look after them and we'll stay with them. Corey said, will this be after, will we do have the house first or will this be the first thing we do? Will we go to Germany? Oh no, we'll have the house first and then we'll be in the, in the new concentration camp which will be turned into a nice home. The house was indeed provided in Holland. There, to the consternation of the locals, Corey took in the ostracized Dutch who had collaborated with the Nazis. She did her best to rehabilitate them and help them face their mistakes and be reintegrated into society. Then, Corey directed her attention onto the second part of Betsy's vision, Germany. After some time, the German authorities came to her and they said, we want to tell you that we've got a building that we might, you might think suitable. It's a concentration camp in Darmstadt. So she traveled there and so she didn't go to a hotel or somewhere. She stayed with them and could hear all the clattering and the talking going on and ministered with them for a long time. The third part of Betsy's vision was told to Corey at Ravensbrück. We must tell people that no pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. They will believe us because we were here. That love was tested during one of her early speaking engagements. Corey was speaking in a church in Germany at the end of the 40s, and she was in front of a group of people who'd gathered there. And at the back of the group, she saw a man who wouldn't look into her eyes. And suddenly, and with a bit of a shock, she recognized him as a guard from Ravensbrück who had been particularly cruel to her sister Betsy. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, writes Corey. He said, How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, says Corey. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. There was hatred and bitterness in my heart. I remembered how my dying sister had suffered through the cruelties of that man. But I know from the Bible that hatred means murder in God's eyes. And I said, oh, Father, forgive me in Jesus' name my hatred. And the Lord took it away. And I said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your love in me is victorious over my hatred. And that moment my hatred disappeared and I said, Brother, give me your hand. I have forgiven you all. Corey said that when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. For over 30 years, Corey Ten Boom crisscrossed the globe sharing his story of faith on every continent. Then, on February 28, 1977, exactly 33 years to the day that the Ten Boom family was taken away by the Gestapo, the 85-year-old Koi immigrated to Orange County, California. She put away her passport, unpacked her suitcase for the last time, declaring emphatically that it was all right because the Lord had promised her that she would write books and produce five films, that she would reach more people than she could ever hope to find face-to-face. In 1978, she suffered two strokes, 
The first, rendering her unable to speak, and the second, resulting in paralysis. She died on her 91st birthday on April 15, 1983, after a third stroke. She is buried in Los Angeles, California. Her gravestone reads, Corey Ten Boom, 1892 to 1983. Jesus is Victor. Yes, I am Corey Ten Boom. I promised my sister I would tell it. And I tell you. What a story. And it all ties back to America at the end of Corey Timboom's life. And even if it didn't, we would have still told this story. Because in the end, it was American GIs, Canadians, and Australians liberating those camps. And always what happened in Europe, we'll talk about here on Our American Stories in the 1940s. Corey Timboom, great work, Greg, great work, Faith. What a life. Remembered here on Our American Stories. <laughs>